you would turn to the Gospel of John and chapter 12 verse 1 Jesus therefore six days before the Passover came to Bethany where Lazarus was whom Jesus raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at meat with him. Mary therefore took a pound of ointment, of pure nard, very precious, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odour of the ointment. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples that should betray him, saith, Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred shillings and given to the poor? Now this he said, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and having the bag took away what was put therein. Jesus therefore said, Suffer her to keep it against the day of my burying, for the poor ye have always with you, but me ye have not always. We just pray. We've already, Lord, committed ourselves to thee, and we do thank thee, Lord, thou hast heard us. We do just pray, Lord, concerning thy word, that thou wilt make it a living reality to every one of us. Thou canst, Lord, in some very wonderful and genuine way, make thy word real to each one of us, and so, as it were, complete what thou hast been seeking to do in this weekend with us. We do ask this, Lord, because we need thee. We need that anointing power of thine, both for speaking and for hearing. We take it by faith, Lord, and trust thee for this whole time. We thank thee for hearing us. In the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. I would like just to <clears throat> um, underline one thing, really, um, to complete what I said earlier, which I think most of you have grasped, but I think could bear a further underlining. And if you will just turn to Ephesians 4, um, I want you to notice one marvellous thing, that the first three chapters, as I think most of you know, of Ephesians is all to do with the, the vision. It's to do with the, God's purpose from before times eternal to the ages to come. And then from chapter 4, the Apostle, by the Holy Spirit, starts to talk about the practical relevance and outworking of this vision on earth. And this is the interesting thing to me. He doesn't begin with personal life, and then go on to home life, and then go on to business life, and then go on to church life. Or he doesn't begin with personal life, and go on to church life, and then home life, 
and business life. He begins with the church. And then almost imperceptibly, he talks about personal life. And then he talks about the marriage relationship. And then he talks about the family. And then he talks about work. Our work. And I find that very interesting because it's not a progression. It's not that he starts with the church, goes on to personal life, moves on to marriage, moves on to home life, moves on to uh, uh, work, working life. But at the end, he says, finally, in chapter 6, and verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And you, we suddenly discover that it's all to do with the church again. We are to put on the whole armour of God. We are to put on the helmet of salvation. We have the shield of faith. We have our loins girt with truth. We have the breastplate of righteousness. Our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God in our hands. Praying, he says... Um, uh, with all prayer and supplication, praying at all seasons in the Spirit. I find this very, very interesting because it's the church he's talking about at the end. He says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rules of this darkness, against hosts of wicked spirits in the heavenly places. So now we come back to the point I was seeking to make at the end of this morning, and that is that we cannot de-church ourselves. Home life, personal life, uh, um, family life, uh, our work life, business life, is really all part of our being the new man. And if we see it like that, I think it, um, it's really tremendous. Uh, for instance, in chapter 4, and um, uh, 25, um, the apostle says, we're to speak truth, each one with his neighbor. Um, not just the believers, but with everybody. Uh, he speaks about being angry and not sinning and making sure that you don't leave scores sort of unsettled. Um, uh, see before the sun goes down, before night comes, that... Uh, it's all right between you and whoever you've been angry with. Um, uh, he speaks about stealing. Let him that stole steal no more, but let him work rather with his own hands. It's all very interesting. They're all personal things. He speaks about corrupt communication coming out of our mouths, anything deceitful, anything dishonest. It doesn't matter whether it's business. It doesn't matter whether it's personal friendships. It doesn't matter whether it's family life, home life or whether it's to do with the members of the body of Christ. Uh, it's all related. And this I find tremendously important. So where do our gatherings together come? They fall into two categories, it seems to me. When we meet together as the members of the body of Christ, we are giving expression to the fact that we are a new man. And there are two real objectives in that meeting together. One is to minister to the Lord. Now, if you want that phrase, you'll find it in Acts 13 and verse 2, where it says that um, certain prophets um, uh, and elders, teachers, in the church at Antioch, 
um, uh, ministered to the Lord and fasted. Now that's a very interesting thing because they were evidently very, very bothered about the work of God and it resulted in the commissioning of Barnabas and Saul to go forth on a missionary journey. Now I'm not sure that we would consider that ministering to the Lord. But isn't it interesting that it says they ministered to the Lord? So one very important aspect of our gatherings is the really the rights of the Lord, the um, the purpose of the Lord, and all the rest of it. We're ministering to Him. That's one thing. The other thing, of course, we're ministering to one another, and that's what we have in Ephesians four, where it speaks about the body building up itself in love. Well, now, I wanted just to say that once again because I think it's, it has quite a lot of bearing on our whole um, concept of this matter. We, we, many have real problems in this busy life as to how uh, to portion out time. And quite honestly, I don't know the answer. Um, someone said to me, here we are, we've been away for the weekend, I thought I was going to sit and talk with you, um, and we've gone in and out of meetings to meals and so on, and we've come to the end and I still haven't talked to you. And it's perfectly true. I mean, it's not just here, it's, it's just life, isn't it? We all have this sort of, you know, they always say in every fat man there's a thin man, um, uh, sort of screaming to get out. Um, and um, uh, I think in all of us there's a kind of a person inside who wants just time to breathe, time to relax, time, you know, and of course we can blame this whole matter of church life, but in actual fact it's the same the world over, wherever we go. The problem is the same. It's not just the Lord's people. It seems to be, because we look at the world, the grass always seems greener on the other side of the fence. We think, all oh, those people in the world, what a wonderful time they have. They sit and they look at television. They go off here. They do this. They do that. You know, they have such lovely lives. We forget the large number of business executives who work up till 10 o'clock at night, um, who have sort of dyspepsia, uh, and ulcers, and I don't know what else. Um, other specialists and so on, medical specialists, who then nurses and many others. I mean, life, I'm afraid, is pressurised. For a few, it is not, but for a large number, it is. Somehow, and this is what I found so encouraging in the last little time we had together in these testimonies. When we give the Lord His place things fall into their right priority. And I think that is the key to everything. No one expects everybody to come to every meeting. It doesn't mean that when it says forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. But I have to say this, that every now and again I'm very sad that in a particular meeting certain people through weariness or times didn't appear when God could have met them in that particular meeting. It was a meeting probably designed in one sense by the Lord for that person but they opted out. And that is sad. So we don't want a slavery to meetings, but we do want to see our gatherings together in their proper context, as a ministry to the Lord and as a ministry to one another. And if we feel that they're dull, it's incumbent upon us 
to put a bit of brightness into them. I don't mean sort of necessarily bring along the trombone or the tambourine or a few other things, but it does seem to me why we should feel all these so-called unwritten conventions which some don't even exist but which we all feel I couldn't I couldn't uh, do anything about that I couldn't suggest anything a change in this or change in that it would be frowned upon but I'm not so very sure about that I think it's incumbent upon us we have a responsibility to bring a bit of brightness and joy and life into these times well Okay, that's all I wanted to say to, um, to finally underline uh, this morning um, uh, what we said. Now, I would like finally to say a few very simple words about the challenge of vision. We have spoken a number of times about living according to divine purpose. We've covered really quite a lot of ground, maybe not all that we should. But nevertheless, we've covered quite a lot of ground. Now, all vision constitutes a challenge. It doesn't matter wherever you look in the Bible. Whenever God gave vision to servants of his, to children of his, it constituted a challenge. Either... They responded to the challenge and shouldered the responsibility or they became disobedient. It doesn't matter whether it was Abraham, it doesn't matter whether it was Moses, it doesn't matter whether it's Isaiah, here am I, send me, you remember? It doesn't matter whether it's Jeremiah, Lord, I'm a child, I can't speak. And the Lord touched his mouth and said, I have put my words in him. Or Ezekiel, when the Lord showed him a scroll and said, eat it, take it and eat it. And he was uh, at first a little afraid to do so, but he took it and he ate it. <laughs> In other words, the message couldn't just be a mechanical tape recording coming through him. It had to be right inside of him, become his flesh and blood. It doesn't matter where we turn, whenever God gives vision, it constitutes a challenge. Now, this is the solemn nature of this weekend. Because if we have talked about vision, you cannot, if you have understood, if you've caught even a glimpse, or if you say, well, I knew it all. This I knew. It makes no difference. This weekend constitutes a challenge to every one of us. And we shall either go forward or backward. There will be no marking time. We shall either go forward into all that the Lord has for you personally as well as for us corporately, or we shall mark people in years to come who just fell away. There are three things about this challenge. Very simple. It is a challenge first and foremost to lay down your life. To a life 
laid down. If you turn to 1 John and chapter 3 and verse 16, we read this. Hereby know we love, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Hereby we know love, because he laid down his life for us. So this matter of laying down is not duty. The impulse is love. It is an expression of love. And it's not sentimental feeling. One lovely, gushy, warm feeling that can take us for a moment and disappear when we meet the problems. It is, in fact, a deliberate doing of the will of God. A response of devotion. Now, the church of God is never built by knowledge. I think you, this is one of your criticisms. You feel that really there's so much knowledge in one way, so much uh, definition in one way, and so little practical outworking. Well, now, if there is little practical outworking, it must come down to this matter that somewhere or other we are not laying down our lives for the Lord and for his people. The first thing you ever saw when you went into the tabernacle was an enormous burnt uh, altar, brazen altar. That was the first thing you saw before you could see anything else. Before you could get into the tent of meeting, before you could come into the holy place or the holy of holies, you had to come via the brass or bronze altar. It wasn't a very nice place. It was a place of continual slaughter, continual blood, continual fire, continual smoke. Now what does that mean? It means that first of all, you and I cannot be any part of God's building work the building of the church, unless we've been saved through the finished work of the Lord Jesus. He was the one who was offered up for us. He was the one who died for us. It is his atoning death that has saved us. That's foundational. But here comes the, um, uh, the crunch. We cannot be practically involved in the building of the house unless we're prepared to lay down our lives. Why? Very simply. Because sooner or later, our self-instincts, our instinct for self-preservation, will get the better of us. Every one of us has got this instinct of self-preservation. We all have rights. And these rights are our problem. We don't like pre people edging in on our rights. We don't like people trampling over us. We don't like the thought of being cut down to size. We feel we have rights. Why should I be part of that dull company? Why should I sort of flow in with that mediocre kind of uh, whatever it is? We, it's an interesting thing that the, 
the, the more inadequate you feel, the more problem you have. I don't know if this is hurtful to anybody, but we have to say it. The more inadequate you are, the, the, the more problem you have over this matter. It's a very strange thing. If you've got real personality and real originality, you do not have problem about giving yourself. It's, it's when we feel inadequate, Somewhere deep down we have that inferiority complex about ourselves. We feel that if we go in, we shall be overshadowed, swallowed up, manipulated, and totally destroyed. Of course, it's nonsense. And that's why sometimes you find, those of you who are teachers, you know very well what I'm talking about, you find a person in the class with an inferiority complex is sometimes the most difficult person in the class. They're the most stubborn, the most obstinate. It's a strange thing, isn't it? It's the same in the whole of life. <laughs> now, my point is very simply this. That there can be no building together unless a person laid down his life. Now, ideally, you cannot have a marriage unless two people are prepared to sacrifice themselves for one another. Out of that readiness of husband to lay down his life for wife and wife to lay down her life for her husband comes a common life. It can work with only one side doing it. But ideally, you cannot have a relationship without two people really laying down their lives one for the other. It's very simple. So, in this matter of being built together, it's impossible unless, first of all, the issue comes and we're prepared to lay down our lives for him and for one another. I think that's a tremendous challenge. You know what Jesus said? He said this, if any man come after me, let him deny himself. I like the way it's put, I think, in the New English Bible. Let him give up all right to himself. Take up his cross and follow. And then he went on to say this. Whosoever will lose his life for my sake and the gospel, the same shall find it. And whosoever will preserve his life or hang on to his life, cling to his life, the same shall lose it. You always lose what you cling onto. In the economy of God, you only have eternally what you let go. That's why if you've got money, you let go of it, you get back eternal riches. If you've got time, you let go of it, God gives you peace. When you have energy, you let go of it. God gives you power. It is a, a principle with God. And therefore, in the house of God, there can be no building at all unless there is this principle. And that's why those of you who really are students of the Word, you will find that when you look in the Old Testament, when they started building the foundation, when they came back to the temple, the very first thing they did was set up the altar and sacrifice. That was the first thing. It's a picture of the cross. You can't do a thing of, uh, with the foundation or the 
rebuilding until first you've got the foundation, you've got the altar and the sacrifice. So I won't say any more about this matter. Here's the first thing, a life laid down. Oh, I, I know some of you say, well, we've heard this before. Yes, but have you responded? Now, perhaps, you have come to crossroads. Maybe for the first time, you're going out of spiritual adolescence to spiritual maturity. And the mark of spiritual maturity is that for the first time, you will to do the will of God. You will to live for others. You will to live for him and for others. Not him and me. Oh, he's got to me, I won't. Fullness, power, gifts, satisfaction, fulfillment. He and I can lead the other mediocre ones. He and I. That's not the house of God. The house of God is that you lay down your life for him and for your brothers and sisters. In that laying down of a life, there will be a harvest. A very real harvest. You will not see it immediately, so don't expect to lay down your life tomorrow and blossom, uh, lay down your life tonight and blossom tomorrow, how some do. There can be like, like Joseph, you can have a confrontation with Potiphar's wife. And end up in a dungeon for some years. And the word of God can try you to the iron enters your soul. But the fact of the matter is this. That once you lay down your life, it is an inexorable principle. It is cause and effect. Once a life is laid down, it will come up. And you will find it again in fullness, in power. In great fruitfulness. Sometimes you'll find it in others. You've laid down your life. It's coming back to you in others. All right. No more about that. Here's the second thing that, con that I think is constituted by, by this challenge. This challenge constitutes. It is a challenge to a life not only laid down for him and for the, your brothers and sisters. It is a challenge to a life immersed in the Holy Spirit. If you read Matthew and chapter 3 and um, verse 11, John said, I indeed baptize you in water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. This baptism is immersion. It's not a sprinkling, it's an immersion. Uh, God doesn't sprinkle you with the Holy Spirit. He, the Lord Jesus, takes you and he immerses you into the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, I believe that if you and I are going to see this matter of the body of the Lord Jesus really functioning, you and I have got to know something more about the person of the Holy Spirit. Whether you've had an experience of the Holy Spirit or not, the matter in one sense, is theoretical. If you've never had an initial experience of the Holy Spirit, other than being born of the Spirit, being born again, well, of course you need to know the Holy Spirit in this way. But those of you who have had an experience, and many of you have, you must remember the word, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. 
It's an ongoing thing. It doesn't just last forever. You have to know what it is to drink of the Holy Spirit, how to appropriate the fullness and power of the Holy Spirit, how to make new discoveries concerning the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, I say this is tremendously important. Why? I'll tell you why. Because the devil will see to it, the hierarchy of evil will see to it, that you and I face such problems and such difficulties, either real or imagined, that no building will ever take place. We shall be out of it altogether. Only the power and direction of the Holy Spirit will keep us in this building program. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel, the builder? Thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace unto it. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, this matter of the Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, is tremendously important. We talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Oh, very well, then you say, well, I wish this, I wish that, I wish it. What about yourself? We, 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 we have a responsibility in this matter. If we are not immersed in the person of the Holy Spirit, if we are not empowered by the Holy Spirit, if we're not filled with the Holy Spirit, if we're not anointed with the Holy Spirit, how on earth are we going to exercise gifts? How on earth are we going to be a vehicle for the manifestation of the Spirit? How on earth are we going to really be able to find and use the equipment of God for any given situation? Take these unwritten conventions. They need to be blasted right out of the atmosphere. But unless you and I are alive to God and alive in the Spirit and empowered by the Holy Spirit and directed by the Holy Spirit, how can we grapple the thing? We sit under it and in the end we fight with one another. We end up getting bitter with one another. Get up, end up being factious about the whole thing. We, we begin to blame so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. They're the root cause of all the problems. Get rid of them and we'd be all right. No, not at all. The real problem is that you and I, if we're going to be builders, if we're going to be in this building, we're going to have to be immersed in the person of the Holy Spirit. And it is only Jesus, our Lord, who can do that for us. He died in order that you and I may be brought in. Why then don't we start to say to the Lord, Lord, I need you. It's no good me sort of pointing a finger at so-and-so, pointing a finger at so-and-so, or saying, look at this need, or look at that need. What about myself? I need to be immersed in the person of the Holy Spirit. I need to know what it is, intelligently, genuinely, realistically, to be led of God. What a wonderful thing it is when someone is prompted by the Holy Spirit to walk round to another believer and, and because they feel they might be in need. I had seen it a number of times. It's so marvellous. Why do we always have to do everything in meetings? Someone said it in one of the things, whatever's wrong with us? Do we only think we can minister to one another in meetings? Wouldn't it be a marvellous thing if God could say to you when you're watching television, shut up, get out, go round to so-and-so. I don't mean in some strange way. Of course, you, you think, oh, it sounds very odd. You know, flash of light and God saying, get up and go round. It doesn't happen like that. Sometimes you just get a funny sense in your heart that so-and-so's in need. 
But just supposing they aren't immune, just supposing you go and bang on the door and they don't say, oh, you, I haven't seen you in my home for years. What a lovely thing it is when you said, you know, I've had you on my heart. It's enough to move someone to tears. When all they're used to are frozen faces. I mean, you suddenly say, well, so-and-so had me on their heart. Can you believe such a thing? But don't you think it's a marvellous thing? And sometimes just be practical. I remember a few year, years ago when I went on one journey, I came back, the grass in my home was about up to my waist. And I thought to myself, if I as leader, the grass comes up to my waist, whatever must be happening to some of the others for, for poor souls in the company. My mother was more moved by John uh, uh, and Ian uh, um, saying, we'll come round weekly, than by anybody else over the years. Such a simple little thing, or something, it's very unspiritual. Don't get anything in heaven for that. But I don't know. This is the kind of way we show love. We, we show responsibility. We show some kind of commitment to one another. If only we were alive to one another. Little things. Some old sister who can't clean her windows. Some little job that can be done. A little bit of shopping that could be perhaps got. Or something else. These little things. They're very small things. But you know they can open the windows of heaven and bring a blessing. And you know, it all comes back to being immersed in the person of the Spirit. Because when you become immersed in the person of the Spirit, you suddenly become sensitive to needs. You don't just become callous. Now, none of us are intentionally callous. But we all become unintentionally callous to one degree or another. It's rather like nurses in a hospital. They have to steel themselves against suffering. And after a while, we get like this. We live rushed lives. We don't know what to do, so we just got to get on with it. And it's no good getting moved by so-and-so and so-and-so. You know what I mean? But I think being immersed in the person of the Holy Spirit is not only a matter of gifts, it's just a matter of caring. And then, I will say no more about that. I could say a lot more about him, but I think our tape is about running out, so... Uh, um, there is a third matter. This challenge constitutes not only is it a challenge to a life laid down for the Lord and for our brothers and sisters, not only is it a challenge to a life immersed in the person of the Holy Spirit. The third thing, it is a challenge to a life poured out in service. Now you can lay down your life, you know, and you can even know a real baptism of the Holy Spirit and still not be poured out. And when that happens, you become mean. There is a dimension in your life and in my life which is missing. This dimension is a life poured out in service. Look at that dear Mary. 
That pure nard was what she was keeping over against her burial. Maybe it wasn't her burial. Maybe it was Lazarus. I don't know. But in the old days, this ointment was a form of investment. And people didn't have banks. But what they did was, they either dressed up their wives in gold and silver, and they became walking banks. And that's not so funny as you think, because out in the East today, many of the Bedouin ladies are walking banks. Uh, you can tell how, what status their husband is by the amount of jewellery they have on them, whether it's gold or whether it's silver, and what carat gold it is, uh, draped around their necks and everything else. They're walking banks. They don't have banks. Their wives are the bank. And they reckon their wives won't run too far, so um, they reckon that they're safe. And as you know, they're veiled as well. It's a closed bank. Uh, but... Uh, the, the, the fact of the matter is that in the old days you didn't have banks where you deposited valuables or money or built up uh, savings accounts. What you did was you had to put it into certain things. And one of the things that people used to do was to put it um, into precious ointment which was often used for their burial. And what was left over there was then passed on to the family. This was Mary's nest egg. It was her savings. I suppose today it would have been worth about £300 sterling. That's a sizable little sum. And for a family that was poor, it was a lot. She took it and she poured the whole lot out on the Lord. And the fragrance of that pouring out filled the whole house. Of course, it got criticism. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I know none of you have maliciously criticized anybody over this weekend. They, it's good that you've let out into the open what you feel, the queries you've got, the questions you've got, the suggestions, the criticisms. But there'll come a day when you yourselves will be subject to the same queries and the same criticism. And often, you will find it very hard if you've had a life that's been poured out. There are always those who stand in the background and say, I think it's a waste of time. It's quite irrelevant. But a life poured out is never irrelevant, not in God's sight. It may appear to be a waste to others, but to God, it is no waste. A life poured out. Jesus said a most beautiful thing in John chapter 7 and verse 37 and 38. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, from within him shall flow out rivers of living water. This is very interesting because it was the last day of a festival that you know as the Feast 
of tabernacles. Um, today, in Hebrew, in Israel, it's called Sukkot. And on the last day of the feast, there was something that was not stipulated by Moses, but which came as a later tradition. They bore great flagons of water for the other days and poured them out as a libation, as it were, on the floor of the temple. Because it was a, a symbol that water came down from heaven. They didn't have to pump it up as in Egypt from the ground, from the Nile, but it came down from heaven. But on the last day, the great day of the feast, the Levites came out bearing the great flagons, and in front of the great assembled multitude, they went through the motions of pouring it onto the ground, and nothing came out. And this was to illustrate the fact that the pouring out of the Spirit had not yet been fulfilled. It was on that day that Jesus stood up and said, If any man thirst, after they'd watched this, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, from within him shall flow out rivers of living water. In other words, this immersion into the spirit is not just to be something for ourselves. It is to issue in rivers flowing out to others. A life poured out. Well, now there is the challenge. It's rather hard, isn't it? It's absolute. One of the things about the Lord Jesus was his absolute challenges. Follow me. Couldn't be more absolute. Leave your nets. Leave the fishing boats. Leave family. Leave home. Follow me. Absolute. He came to Matthew one day when he was at the tax collector and just said, follow me. And it says that Levi, or Matthew as we know him, just got up and followed him. Just left his tax office and followed the Lord. The challenges of the Lord are absolute. And now you and I, we have to face it. What are we going to do? How are we going to respond? Someone says, it's too much. God doesn't expect you to try and work out the whole complexity this afternoon. All he wants of you is a response. I will follow. If it means a life laid down, Lord, I don't know what it means fully, but I'm ready to follow if it means a life immersed in the person of the Holy Spirit, I want it, Lord. I want to know that. If it is a life poured out in service, I want it, Lord, for you. There is no other way to come to the bride, no other way to come to the city, no other way to be part of that eternal Service of God. 